Hello, everyone, and welcome back to NU Brainwaves. Uh, we have a fantastic uh, and fascinating episode for you today. Um, I have the uh, great fortune to be here with Dr. Ann Tanner um, and to be able to pick her brain um, about the history of the uh, Forsyth Institute. Um, Here's uh, actually a question to start off with you right away, because I uh, constantly seem to be messing this up. Is it Forsyth or Forsyth? I pronounce it Forsyth, as indeed do most people. Uh, but then I call the plant Forsythia, not Forsythia. So anyway, most people will seem to say Forsyth. Forsyth is an ancient Scottish clan, and that's where the family and the name came from. Fascinating. I had I had no idea um, uh, about uh, that that specific piece of knowledge. So, for those not in the know, um, the Forsyth Institute um, uh, uh, is was founded uh, many many years ago um, in the 1910s um, and existed in a location on Northeastern's own campus for 100 years before it moved to Cambridge in 2010. Uh, the building um, for all of those uh, graduate students who may be listening um, in bioengineering or biomedical fields or mechanical engineering fields, 140 the Fenway, where you may have, a, where some of your labs where you do your work might be, um, its original purpose, that building, was as the Forsyth Dental Infirmary. So on that topic itself, um, I'd like to uh, ask you um, about uh, the Institute's founding um, and how it was founded um, and why it was founded. Sure. Okay. Uh, as as uh, in context, when you consider Boston at that time, it was an area where there's a tremendous amount of immigration from Europe mostly, um, waves of immigration. When people emigrate, they come with nothing. And very often um, they're disadvantaged and poor. So in Boston, um, as in many of the cities in the United States and throughout the world, there was very little dental care for children. Um, so um, so that's, that's kind of the background there. As far as the Institute, the, the Forsyth family, would, as I mentioned earlier, uh, came from a Scottish clan, a lowland clan. The father, uh, I think his name was James, I, I found it. He uh, founded and ran what was known as the Boston Belting Company in Roxbury. And it was, it was on what was called the Stony Brook because for any industry, you need water. And what they did, they made a lot of the belts for the Industrial Revolution to run the, like the steam machines and so on. Tremendously entrepreneurial uh, institution, especially his son, James. Um, he had, they had eight children. Uh, two of the girls died very young. Um, and then another girl um, survived for a while. In the end, it was four or five of the boys um, that worked in the belting company. And as it turned out, none of them had surviving heirs. Some of them had children, but as you may know, a life expectancy was pretty short. And there was a big uh, cholera epidemic in Boston and some of the children were lost then. Anyway, James could see the eldest son uh, he was not going to have an heir, and he discussed with his dentist. So the, the, the setup was where you are in Northeastern was actually then Tufts Medical School and Tufts Dental School. And Forsyth was independent. Northeastern was not the apple of anybody, it was not even considered yet. Um, yeah. So... Uh, uh, Johansson, I believe his name was, um, the dean at Tufts suggested what would be his dream was to have an institute for children. So Thomas and his, uh, um, James and his brothers left an endowment 
for this infirmary. At the time, it, it was founded in 1910. By 1914, they had a building. 15 was when they had the first kids in. And by then, Thomas Forsyth was the only um, surviving Forsyth brother left. If you, um, there are more buildings in the Boston area related to the Forsyths, but that this is the one that's on the Fenway. The, the Fenway is called the Forsyth Dental Infirmary for Children, and that's the name that's over the front door. And the underneath it says over the children's waiting room for the children. So children would come. There's a side door. If you look down the side of the foresight, there's a little park facing the yeah. building to the left. There's a side entrance, which has been closed, but that was the children's entrance. They would come through a turnstile there and pay either a dime or a nickel and come in and um, be seen and treated. The reason that they charged them a dime or a nickel, because it was felt if it was free, um, the treatment would be taken for granted. And this was different right. from a twin institute almost in Rochester, which was founded one year later, um, where they made it free. So they can say they're the first independent free, <laughs> but Forsyth was a little bit further. In fact, the building yeah. in Rochester is, was, was designed is exactly the same footprint. As foresight. So, oh, that's fascinating. What, that that's that was the foresight, the Rochester uh, Dental in, um, Dispensary, it was called. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the beginning of all the Eastman Dental Institutes. So that, now we have the children, and then we have the first uh, director was a fellow called was uh, Thomas W. Cross, who was a dentist who had a big interest in training in dental hygiene, an advocate for dental hygiene, uh, where Percy Howe came in on the story, who you mentioned. Um, from the very beginning, there was a treatment for the children, but there was always, even from the beginning, an interest in research. Because if you mm -hmm. just go on treating teeth forever, you can't move forward. So Percy Howe was actually hired to, um, as a research director. So right. he, he ran his own research program, which was in itself very interesting. Um, the other major treatment component that was founded one year later, I think the second hygiene school in the States was the, the dental hygiene school, which was right. at Forsyth for a long time. It's now located at the Mass College of Pharmacy, as you may know. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, what Forsyth is quite notable for you know, going into the future is a lot of the prophylactic research that they developed, right? Well, they had, they had a big hygiene school and originally it was affiliated um, when they started expanding the program to include degrees, they went to Tufts and then Tufts moved. And so when I was there in the 70s is when I arrived, um, that the didactic programs were a bit Northeastern. So they got mm. their degrees through Northeastern, um, and then now they're, they're the Mass College of Pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, for our Northeastern students, speaking of Northeastern, um, if any of you uh, Northeastern students know where Kerr Hall is, um, there's that little pathway, uh, that is the little Forsyth Park, that pathway that cuts between uh, those buildings there. And if you're walking along that nicely sort of uh, that path with the grass on the either side, walking towards the Back Bay Fens, then on your left, uh, you can look and see uh, the children's entrance Correct. that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and the building itself, just as a reference for anybody, um, is in that sort of area uh, close to the Wollastons at the Marino Center um, and right next to uh, the MFA. Um, and I believe reading something about how when they were initially developing the plans for the infirmary, they were taking it into consideration, its proximity to the MFA. And that's part of what influenced the uh, very sort of, um, I guess you could call it sumptuous stone design, right, right, that the building ended up with. Yeah. Somewhere I dug out, where, oh, I've got so many pages open. And I wanted to just share with you something else when we're going back to that history that's that was quite amazing. If I can find the PowerPoint, 
uh, among among the so we have a director we have lots of students kids coming from school they mm-hmm. they came they walked they came on the city buses they came however they came um, right. originally and um and, but then they were treated so they had um they were treated by dentists uh, for their fillings and so on um there were dentist interns um and as time went by, more and more of them were, came from overseas because they weren't paid as much as other whatever. And there was a big right. training program for dentists within the building. And a lot of the original in, uh, uh, interns, they were called, these were dentist interns, uh, went on to do research or found dental schools in their own countries and, and so on. So it's a big program. Uh, as, as time went on and Percy Howe became director, he was very, very interested in the training of the interns and he had set up a very rigorous uh, training program six days a week. Um, wow. Yeah. But among the things that I found was very uh, interesting just to know what, the, the, what was going on, I looked through the old um, annals and found listed the number of procedures that went on 1915 to 1920. And um, it says here the number of the first year, 1916, over 31,700 uh, cases were seen. They had wow. um, uh, 14,000 patients. Now, mm-hmm. are you ready for this one? The number yeah. of teeth extracted, 45,685. So that tells My you goodness. there was a tremendous amount of need and uh, work going on. Yeah. So when kids get cavities, they, they can very, um, when they're not, um, no fluoride, no, no good hygiene, no good you know, dental health as we know it now, um, the teeth uh, become decayed, very can become very seriously decayed. They get the the disease usually from the mother, and um, so if they're really bombed out, you have to take them out. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you can then the next step, which is obviously better, is to try and um, save teeth and and do fillings and so on. Right. Um, they also had, if you've looked at your pictures. At the beginning, it was dental infirmary. They, they mm-hmm. did tonsillectomies. They had a, like hospital beds up there. And wow, okay, yeah. They had um, a certain amount of, they had an orthodontic program that uh, ended quite quickly but restarted, and then it was, that was a very key component of uh, Forsyth's um, history as the orthodontic program, but that started a little bit later. Anyway, I just wanted to share with you the tremendous number of, treatment that went on even just trying to conceptualize forty-five thousand teeth is pretty astounding mm-hmm. and uh I, I believe i i had the chance to look at some blueprints and i believe i remember seeing that there was a, like an operating the- theater right absolutely built yeah. into the building uh right in which um operations could be done uh for the benefit of other sort of dentists and professionals watching right Oh yes, there was a, a like a, a bit like the uh, ether dome. You people could sit around and see, and that that's that's where they would do the adenoids and tonsils and and things mm-hmm. like that. Right. I imagine. I mean, I don't know, but maybe the extractions too. There's another yeah. interesting story about how the kids got there. Um, well, and, and that's uh, sorry, but that, that's also what's uh, talking about the extractions. That's what's notable about the building itself is that the second floor had like twelve foot high ceilings. Oh no, no, correctly. more like twenty. Oh, uh, sorry, yeah, a 12, 12 meter, twelve meter high Probably. ceilings. I think it so is. So the yeah. ceiling you see on the second floor now is a, a drop ceiling. They pulled the ceiling down. This it was built in the era before air conditioning, mm-hmm. so the only way they could get sort of circulation was to have very high ceilings and yeah. in any way it closed down in the summer because it was too hot. Right. Yeah. I, I just found that fascinating because I had a chance to go inside the building and they have preserved some of the uh, ceiling, right? Um, okay. I haven't been there for in, in the renovation. Yeah. And you can see that um, 
it's this really interesting, these tiled, like vaulted ceilings. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. And I just thought that was very interesting. And, and uh, there is some pictures online of that, the original second floor um, and mm-hmm. of just these massive windows. Right. Um, and f- and these operating tables all lined up facing out of the windows. It's very interesting. Well, those are the, those were the dental chairs. Yeah. Dental. Right. Right. The dental chairs. Yeah. Yeah. I should be more specific. Yeah. The dental chairs. Yeah. Lined up facing out of the windows. Uh, sorry, I think you were going to say something about how the children got well, I was there. Going, following from your comment, throughout, um, there was a lot of tile either from Holland or made in the North End by the Saturday evening girls. So they had tiles and stories for the children. If you ever went to the downstairs to the mm-hmm. children's waiting room, and we have yeah. some quite nice reproductions at the nursery rhymes and local stories. Um Rip Van Winkle, Jason and the Golden Fleece. There's this one, yeah, Dorchester uh, Grant, and so on, things like that. Yeah, I, I got the, I got the chance to go down there, and there's Good. some very cool mosaics sort yeah. of on the walls. Yeah, and I, I think that's a nice thing there to have. Tiles. It re- yeah, tiles. Yeah, um, it, it remind, it reminded me of um, in modern uh, waiting rooms, you know, children's dentistry waiting rooms that I've been in where they have sort of murals of like, you know, mermaids or like fish or something on the walls. Yeah. The whole, whole room, um, could be washed down top to bottom. That was the point of the, the tiles. So Mm. so it could be in essence, uh, cleaned out completely between one thing and the one, one, the other. And throughout the building, there are tiles. Um, and there's another children's waiting room, but, in, in various offices, what was the, uh, or the first floor, You, if you look around, they have tiled ceilings. Mm-hmm. Um, the, it, it, originally, it had an aquarium in the middle, but that wow. didn't, didn't survive, um, I guess. But for the, if you look at really early pictures, you can see this right in the middle of the children's reading room, there was a, an aquarium. Mm. That, that didn't um, survive. So let me... Okay, I've got a list of all the places that kids came from. Um, one thing that uh, is kind of anecdotally interesting was the connection between the Kennedys and Forsyth. Um, yeah. When, uh, uh, you know, Joseph Kennedy was basically the, the family father, um, one of his kids, John Kennedy, had scarlet fever in 1920, and his father said, um, if he got better, this is our future president, if he recovered, <laughs> he would give half his money to charity. Wow. Well, the kid got better. And at that time, he didn't have so much money, but he did have $3,700, which he gave to a charity, Guild of St. Apollonia. And then they bought a bus so that they used this bus to bus kids to, to the oh, institute. Right. Mm-hmm. So, there's one story and there's an interesting plaque on the wall for that. But uh, so you can we we can thank a future president for or a past president now future president then for helping children get to the infirmary. Well, his father. Well, actually, his father gave the money to charity, so it's a two-step <laughs> process. But anyway, right. there you go. That's the that one. Um, well, we th- yeah, we can thank the the past president for recovering from scarlet fever. <laughs> there you are. There you are. That helped the whole thing. Um, I need to go back to your list so that I don't ramble. Well, I have a question. I've heard, um, or at least read, that um, in 1908, James Forsyth was inspired by hearing a crying child. Um, That's a story. Right, from the window of his hotel room and investigating it, discovering that the child had a toothache, asking the parents, you know, uh, you know, like why, why does it, why doesn't the kid, you know, have dental care and, or, you know, get the tooth treated and they're like, we're too poor. And upon seeing his dentist, his dentist sort of explained that poor children often suffer in pain, are unable to afford dental care. And that sort of inspired James to, uh, create, or at least leave aside a significant sum of money to create the dental infirmary. Is that story true or well, is it's, it apocryphal? It's, it's written up in the the, um, the How biography. The way I read it was that, uh, as you said, uh, James Bennett heard this child crying. And when he talked to his dentist, he d- his dentist was the one who told me that there's 
basically they have to catch as catch can. There's not no way for treatment to get children to get treatment. Um, mm. And but the dentist um, was already very interested in setting up an institution just to treat children. So I guess the stars aligned. Mm. Right, and and James, you know, Bennett Forsyth was had the money to <laughs> make that happen. He, he he put money into it, and then after he died, uh, let me see. Um, the James was James Bennett Forsyth. That was his mother's name. He had over sixty patents for machinery, so he had uh, a fair amount of money. He left five hundred dollars mm-hmm. for the institution. Then his brother John and Thomas added another one and a half million plus another three million to maintain mm. the building so that they mm. set up with an endowment. And then they erected it in 1914 in memory of James and another brother, George. So they all all contributed there. So they they you know they obviously were all in the same place. And that was four million at the time? Well um James died in 1909 and the founding mm-hmm. was around 1910. So he left the money. Right. And then um, it was really only Thomas who was, uh, John left money. Oh, that's, you know, John was around till 1913 and Thomas till 28. So those are mm-hmm. the two that uh, pitched in more money, family, family money right. to uh, get this going. Well, and and that was uh, like it, thinking in terms of inflation, right? That was four million in nineteen ten, right? Yes, indeed. Which yeah, is, which is which is probably uh, like a maybe a significant sum now, maybe like eighty million or something. Right? Well, except that, except that they spent it. It was spent on maintenance. Um, oh, of course, of course, yeah. Just just equating. Um, Oh, okay. You know, in today's dollars, I don't know. In Obviously, today's dollars, lots, yeah, lots and lots. Yeah. How about that? Just yeah, just to, just to trying to help visualize that amount of money for our audience. You oh know. no, I think uh, it would be more than that, actually, William. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, it was it was it was it was what they had from the the industry. But you're the you you keep going with what where you're going, and then the, again in that same um, uh, book. Um, was this story about expanding research. So among the questions you had was about women in foresight. So one mm-hmm. of um, the original person in research was from Tufts. His name was Leary, William Leary. And um, he had his own program. His wife was actually one of the first uh, me- uh, medic researchers in the States. Uh, but he went back to his own lab. But what he gave to Forsyth uh, for um, for Percy Howe was his technician, and she was trained in how to manage bacteria, bacterial plates, and so on. So she mm-hmm. was she by herself was a, a key person in in the early days. Another place where women uh, featured uh, uh, largely, of course, was in the hygiene school. Most of the right. hygiene school instructors um, and students were all women. In fact, I don't think the first guy came until about 1970. Um, uh, the first director was male, but most of the time they had female directors. And talking right. about women, the other area where women were very prominent was when um, orthodontics was reinstituted in the 1960s. And uh, 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 women, uh, female dentists were. There were some mm. prominent female orthodontists then. Interesting. And yeah. in the research labs, PhD um, mm-hmm. research workers were those were women too. Well, uh, yeah. At my understanding of sort of uh, at at least at, or in its earlier years, right? So twenties, thirties, right? Was that uh, women were primarily. Uh, dental hygienists, right? And men were primarily dentists? Yes, but there's also a research component going on. There was a research mm-hmm. lab. So uh, Thomas ha- um, Percy Howe um, was hired to do research. So he took samples from kids with with cavities and plated them mm-hmm. out um, to see what bacteria were there. Right, and in, uh, in Petri dishes and stuff. Yeah. Exactly, and then they had a Big, uh, it was a time when almost everything was tested in animals. So apparently Forsyth had 
and in, even had when I came um, a, a very extensive collection of animals used as, for experiments. So they could test them in that. And that's really where Percy Harrell went. He, um, this was a different time. Um, and he, he had this idea of deer, um, not unique to him, that there was a big connection between the oral cavity and your general systemic health. And he felt mm -hmm. that very strongly. He had worked in practice for a number of years before he came. And he observed when people's health went down, then their gums and everything seemed to go downhill. So he had this core, right. core, core belief. So this it, idea that there is this this uh, correlation between ma mouth health and the oral systemic connection, mouth. which has reemerged several times since, but this mm -hmm. was one of his things. Um, so he started working on um, vitamins because without vitamins, if you don't if you have vitamin C or vitamin C, you have bleeding yeah. gums. So it made a lot of sense to to do that. So he worked with some investigators at Harvard. And in, in the end, and he got, um, uh, uh, he was a Harvard professor uh, mm -hmm. and, and um, maybe the, one of the, the first oral ones, although he did his work in, um, at Forsyth. Yeah. So he had a career both in looking at what was causing cavities in these children because they're all around him uh, mm -hmm. and in working with uh, investigators at Harvard into uh, vitamins, which hadn't actually been named yet. They were, they, they were, didn't, didn't even have a name, but he worked on vitamin <laughs> C, D, and E. The other yeah. thing he did, and I, um, one of the areas even clinicians even now kind of know him for, he devised a solution called Howe's Sil Silver Solution. So it was a solution mm. he created that contains silver. Silver is a very strong antimicrobial agent. Yeah. Um, people right. Today, people use it in babies' eyes, things like that. But then it's been used in, uh, to treat infections since, you know, ancient Rome and, um, mm -hmm. and Greece. Anyway, he, he created an, a solution with ammonia and put it on the kids' teeth, and uh, it just stopped caries dead. I mean, the cavity mm. stopped and it would be right. used in root canal treatments. Um, that approach um, kind of went down a little bit as fluoride came up. But if right. the treatment now, they're sort of up and coming for the last five, 10 years or so is, is um, uh, sodium diamine fluoride, fluoride, so that, that's mm. a silver fluoride solution, which is what they're using to treat kids now. So it was a precursor right. to that. I see. And yeah, right. That's that's very interesting that it's sort of come back around. So Hal was quite well known for that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, after the, what happened, and the same thing happened in Rochester, it turns out, so I read that book too, and... Um, is uh, what both the institution, the Eastman's and Forsyth demonstrated to the dental profession that you could treat children. Mm, children right, could right. be treated successfully. So then the dental schools took over some of the treatment for children. Plus mm, fluoride was emerging. And that, that was very helpful to uh, suppress um uh, the, the amount of dental ca cavities and caries. I mean, they're still around, but the tremendous mm -hmm. load went down. So, it, so prior to these institutions, uh, these dental schools didn't really treat children. Nobody. I mean, there, it's still hard to get treat children treated, and some did. There, there were definitely practices for treating children, but not so much. Interesting. So, but I think it's my understanding um, from reading, of course is mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, children's dentistry is incorporated more into dental school. So there were more dentists treating children. The, right. the, the, that overwhelming dental uh, problem was suppressed with the use of fluoridation. Um, right, right. And speaking of fluoride, I guess uh, we can partly think that the research into fluoride um, and then its uh, addition to, you know, water, Right, the general sort of uh, 
you know, water supply, right, through the water treatment process for reducing a lot of uh, cavities and stuff. Yeah. That, 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 that was sort of happening worldwide. A lot of work was done at NIH, which was founded. Uh, the dental wing, at least, was founded. There was so much, den so much dental, so many cavities in recruits before World War II that they they started the National Institute of Dental Research to so so they could do something about this tremendous dental load in mm -hmm. in, in folks that otherwise would be um, go to um, go to war. They couldn't go to war. They didn't have enough teeth. Um, <laughs> so that was it. Um, where Forsyth picked up on the fluoride story was um, after Percy Howe died. There was uh, a refocusing, if you like. And the trustees, um, under a couple of interim directors, one particularly whose name was John McDonald, decided to refocus um, more in research. Well, research had been there, but to really mm. change the um, emphasis. So what's happening on one level, at the beginning, we talked about how much money was left uh, to run the institution and so on. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, it's, it's, it's foundation, philanthropy. So from then on with that turnaround, now we have NIH, we have NIDR, which are giving, which are making funds available for dental research. So then we mm -hmm. could a complete change in, in financing. The financing for the research component comes from NIH. So it's, it's just mm. like a switch from, you know, um, foundation to, to government funding. Right. And then for our listeners, the NIH is the National Institute of Health. And then NIDR is National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. Well, then it changed its name to that, yes. National Institute of Dental. So that's, that's people can write grants. And that's personally how I paid the rent, mm. if you mm. like. Um, <laughs> Uh, is, is writing research grants and, and uh, right. that was so it's kind of interesting but it, it all the time the hygiene school is going on that's still progressing training hygienists with right. more and more um, academic programs and then they were do, getting their degrees from Northeastern well, at least when I was there mm -hmm. um, and, and so on uh, and then uh, as part of the transition, uh, a fellow called Conrad Maurice came and instituted a big program in growth and development. He was trained as an orthodontist. He actually had been one of those people who had been a Forsyth intern and he went away, mm. went to war, World War II, then came back and started right. an orthodontic program, which went on for really quite a long time. Mm -hmm. So all those things. And, and then in addition, um, there were the research labs. I didn't come until that new wing on the back was built. The bit you see from, right. um, is it Hemingway Street? Oh, gosh. I, I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, um, that, that bit you see on the, on the back, on, not, the, uh, on the, on the, not in the front, on the other side by the parking lot. You see the, yeah. and overlooking the street. That was built as a research wing. So that's oh, where, that's yeah. where mate, the labs assigned you them were. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Right, because it is it's, it's interesting building to look at because half of it is this uh, sort of you know Greco-Roman kind of you know marble building, and then the other half is uh, this concrete uh, sort of fifties looking. Yeah. That, that was built in '69, and the mm. other was. Um, 1914. It was, yeah. I think it's actually um, marble. I have to. I have to. I, I, I've dug it out, but I seem to have lost it now. But I can find it. Yeah, it's a, a white Vermont marble. Yeah. In, okay. Uh, well done. Thank you. Nineteen eleven. Yep. Yeah. It's it's a it's a very visually striking building because of that sort of uh, contrast between the two halves. Well, uh, yes. Anyway, that's where the research. I haven't actually been back since Northeastern um, started renting the building, so, um, so I don't know how it looks. Maybe you can take me. 
so um so Percy had a big Percy Howard a big influence in the early days and then um the director that did most of the overseeing most of the research from let's see now 62 to 91 was John mm -hmm. Hine he was a researcher in fluoride he'd come from Rochester um, but had also worked in, in Colgate. He was actually dean of Tufts Dental School before he came. Um, and he just, uh, he let, I wouldn't say let, he set the stage that people could write grants, do research without mm. too much uh, um, overwhelming work <laughs> or, you know, paperwork from above apart from writing right. the things. So then there were, that was a period of tremendous amount of, of research in, in, in biochemistry, in um, immunology, microbiology. Forsyth is very, very famous for oral microbiology, um, a growth and development, trying to find all the various departments going down the corridor. So that was a, that was a very... That, remains a very big period. I, I, I landed in microbiology, so I know more about that. Mm -hmm. But they discovered new comp uh, um, components in saliva that were important for bacteria to stick to teeth or stop them sticking to teeth. There was a lot of work mm. in fluoride, how fluoride worked, the mechanism yeah. of how it actually worked or didn't work. Because mm. um, uh, for a while it was thought um, that you absorbed fluoride systemically, but it turns out that fluoride actually works locally, which is why it works in toothpaste and so on. Right, right. And one of the advocates for that, right from the early, early days, right on your northeastern campus at um, at, at what was then Tufts was a first fellow called uh, Basil Bibby, who did a lot of work in fluoride, um, mm. and they did the early studies. And he found in the 1920s, 30s around that it was a local effect. Right. Anyway, the actual mechanism was worked out at, at Forsyth in this period. Um, and that's and that's why sort of when you get fluoride applied to the dentist. You know, it's painted on in a sense, right? Exactly. And they, that, I and mean, they tell you, and they tell you, know, uh, you know, don't eat anything that might scratch it off, right? Don't drink anything hot. Yeah. Correct. Well, that was that. That was uh, a lot. A lot of that work was actually on precursor to the northeastern campus in Rochester, mm -hmm. and then the actual actual mechanisms were worked out at Forsyth. Right. Interesting. So, some those are some of the key things there I mean, it's it's hard to um work out a lot of work was done in gum disease and periodontology mm -hmm. um there was a time when people just thought the more grungy your mouth was <laughs> the worst disease you have and uh isn't uh the bacteria that uh, you discovered related to periodontal disease well i I walked in, as it were, at a time when they were beginning to look at individual bacteria and gum disease. Mm -hmm. And um, what I, my, my, my research project originally was sort of taking people with advanced disease, with disease that was regressing, and we grew out several groups of bacteria that nobody really had seen before. So we kind of had to find out what they were. And then mm -hmm. when they didn't have names... We had to give them names, and one of them right. that I had named uh, really was a group effort, always a group effort. Mm -hmm. um, uh, some other colleagues of mine who worked pioneering work in 16S sequencing and so on, um, Pastor and Dewhurst, showed that this particular species was not a, a bacteroides, but it was something else, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of effort. And for, anyway, it was finally renamed. And what often happens when you name a new genus, you go back to the person who originally described the species, and that happened to be me. So that's right. that happened. But I've got a slide here of one, two, three, four, five, six different bacteria that are named 
by Forsyth investigators. And I have another mm. slide here of maybe 40 bacteria uh, named by Forsyth investigators. Mm -hmm. So a lot of bacteria have come yeah. from uh, Forsyth um, <laughs> investigators, like lots. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that went on. As I said, the pioneering work of uh, uh, Pasteur and Dewhurst in sequencing, they were really pioneers in, in microbiology in that, mm. that field and, and remain so. Um, so that was a lot of microbiology. There's a lot of microbiology in periodontal disease, pulling it out. It's the first time anybody, not really the first time anybody applied antibiotics to gum disease, but this sort of gum disease. Mm -hmm. um, like whatever. Um, so that since antibiotics were discovered, people tried it for all infections. A lot, tremendous amount of work was done in dental caries and what the bacteria that cause dental caries, how they work. One key microorganism that was worked on a lot was called Streptococcus nutans. So mm. um, that's a, a big caries bacterium, but there are other ones and they number investigators, particularly um, Harold Jordan, um, Ron Gibbons, and Hans van Hout, um, helped us a lot <laughs> understand the microbiology of, of caries. Is streptococcus related to strep throat in any way? Uh, a good question. There, there are strep throats, but they're, diff they're a different um, group of a different uh, taxonomic group than the one that causes the one that causes caries mm -hmm. um, or major, you know, never in this world, we know the microbiomes of everywhere have a lot of different bacteria and it's community mm -hmm. activity, but there are still things that jump out. But the, right. the mutans ones of caries are a, a different subgroup than the what the angiosis group, I think it is, that causes strep throat. Mm, so even within a genus, you can have vastly different yeah. species. Because, you know, strep throat is gonna is gonna cause, you know, just a terrible, you know, uh soreness of your throat back there. And then caries is gonna cause a bunch of tiny little holes in your teeth. There you go. That's very fascinating. That's because those caries bacteria, the ones in caries, not only make acid. Which, which is what all the streptococci do, mm. but they have the ability to survive acid. So mm. they can, once they hit an acid environment, and these mechanisms, again, were partly worked out at Foresight, they have mechanisms um, to survive acid because you can have mm. streptococci mm. that sort of don't survive acid, but these caries pathogens obviously need to be able to survive that environment. So that's one of the key um, characteristics. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Part of, um, my, I mean, I guess, I mean, I definitely, I, my first interest was in the building cause I lived next to it and saw it all the time. But then back in like, I think this was as far ago as middle school. Um, I experienced a debilitating dental abscess. So I had a cavity and then I had that cavity treated and, you know filled um but then i uh developed a dental abscess even after i had that cavity filled that hospitalized me for three days um and ever since um uh, that cavity uh, i've had no more um and i've taken very good job of my teeth i think that sort of functioned as a wake-up call for me um but i think that's part of what uh led me uh to become interested in stuff like this so you could identify with those little kids <laughs> definitely yeah definitely i mean when they have multiple abscess teeth yeah yeah it was it was it was quite <laughs> it was quite the experience and definitely <laughs> in you know if you need something to encourage you to take better care of your teeth <laughs> pain is a great motivator in mm -hmm, many ways yeah. <laughs> so how are we doing let's have a look i'm looking at your list um Many, many breakthroughs in, in um, yeah. research, but especially maybe because I'm biased, um, <laughs> microbiology. Uh, and because the mouth is accessible to take samples, to see what's going on as far as disease is concerned, and take mm. samples relating it, you only have to open the mouth. 
right and they become right. very easy obviously maybe ears and so on uh, mm. equally whatever but um among the investigators uh, indeed the, uh, a lot of them from foresight but not exclusively did some pioneering work on how to grow these bacteria they grow a lot of them grow without oxygen not all and mm. and how to manipulate them then all the sequencing work was done from investigators mm. forth. so mm-hmm. even now when we have uh, the, the, the the basic work that was done applies to uh, multiple fields in microbiology because mm-hmm. in part people were interested and B you can get samples and look at the disease quite easily so that's mm-hmm. um, important you asked about the Forsyth experiment yeah and I haven't actually had time to read the book but I read a little bit um, mm-hmm. again a little bit going back to Northeastern's precursor with Tufts Dental School mm-hmm. The, this fellow, Bibby, who was dean for a while, um, but based in Rochester, his, he was from New Zealand. And his brother mm. in New Zealand, both dentists, uh, founded the first expanded duties program for auxiliaries because New Zealand had tremendous uh, dental caries like these kids we were describing before. Not mm-hmm. your one tooth with an abscess, but 10, 12. Right. I mean, that still happens today. So they started this this uh, program. I think they're called New Zealand Nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, and different places uh, succeeded with it. So the, the core concept is that there aren't enough dentists to treat the disease that's around. Right. Why don't we treat, why don't we specifically train or get trained dental hygienists to do the drilling and filling Mm -hmm. so that allow dentists to do, uh, you know, more advanced or other procedures. So um, I guess this program was started in 1969 at Forsyth, no, 40s, 40-something. 1949. And then it was, that one fizzled, and I don't have the details on that. And then they restarted it again um, in a program called the Rotunda Project in about 1970. Mm-hmm. And again, so what happened, and it happened over and over, sadly, until <laughs> fairly recently, um, dental hygienists were trained to do, um, same as dentists, to do fillings and so on, and, mm-hmm. and work under the supervision of a, a dentist. And anecdotally, you asked a little bit about me. When I went to dental school, um, my first week, we were working alongside dental auxiliaries. And I worked Mm -hmm. in a school dental clinic for a while, and I had one office, and the hygienist had the other one. And we just worked side by side, no problem. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, uh, as has happened in the UK and as has happened, happened then, the dentists were kind of upset by their trade being taken away from them, and they yeah. disallowed the program. Um, so, what happened to what happened? Interesting to the students, they I went to dental school. They went to medical school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so right. they 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 I mean, just because uh, the. Um, Society at the time didn't allow women to do things. Right. Doesn't mean to say women can't do things. So it's yeah, it's especially interesting. Uh, and of course, the first one was that 1949 Forsyth experiment. It was it's, it's interesting because right, it is um, the uh, taking these tasks specifically uh, that had been specifically delegated to male with dentists who is which was a male profession. Right at the time. Well, no, there were women dentists. There's a whole book on that, but you, obviously mm-hmm. there were more. But, but yeah, more. But the, the more sad men. thing is, yeah. they still have all this untreated disease. Mm-hmm. You know, but I yeah. won't. Yeah, never mind. But but uh, well, but to, but to I mean, you know, there there is it's a, it, was, it was, of course it wasn't one hundred percent men as dentists, right? Right. But. Um, it's interesting because, uh, and like what I'm looking at here is that uh, it was it, they were trying to determine if, and this is in quotes, feminine personnel 
could be trained to adequately prepare and fill cavities in children's teeth under the supervision of a dentist, right? So it's um, the, these, uh, uh, ro these roles and tasks for dentists, which was majority men, being uh, you know given to a dental hygienist, which is majority female, and uh, looking at um, right, what I'm looking at here is that organized dentistry in Massachusetts uh, sort of banded together and repealed uh, the sort of like uh, and sort of like terminated the project ten months after it began, right? So um, it, it it looks sort of like a a case of uh, you know. Uh, uh, this majority women profession taking on roles that were delegated to a majority male profession and then the the men coming together and stopping that from uh, happening. Well, be that as it may, the same thing happened in the UK. I was very sad to find out. Mm -hmm. I believe the New Zealand nurses, as they were called, I believe, are doing fine. Um, but now if you look in the, across the states, Certain states are allowing um, expanded duty hygienists to do fillings and so on because the dental need mm -hmm. is just too much. Right, right. Um, so it's taken till 2020 or so. <laughs> um, and <laughs> in Massachusetts, they're opening the doors again because despite fluoride, despite all these people treating kids, there are pockets of... Um, mm -hmm. Uh, dental uh, pockets of disease. So what um, all those, the, the kids that came through the program back in the day have not been forgotten. They were, they called them, they were very proud to be Forsyth kids mm. and uh, they're, they're getting pretty elderly now that I met uh, Don Rodman, who would run Rodman Ford, I believe. He was a Forsyth kid, as indeed was his friend Herb Chambers. Um, so the, the, these, these folks are still, some of them are around. Um, but it turns out that there are pockets of, um, of dental disease um, in, in schools. Kids are untreated. So they have what they re, reinvigorated the Forsyth Kids program in um, the 200s. And it's called Forsyth Kids, all one word with a big K in the middle rather than the Forsyth, original Forsyth kids. And they have a bus and they go to um, uh, over 60 schools and communities. Um, I've got a table from 2015 and they, they in the, generally were uh, finding, um, examining the kids, putting in sealants and referring them for treatment. And now, obviously it was very challenging during the pandemic. So right. they expanded their program to to um, dental education for the children. Mm -hmm. Now they have not only they have their van, but they put up clinics and start treating them. So wow. the, the yeah. original mission, in some respects, continues. Yeah. So I mean, it definitely and and going back to what we were talking about with finally in 2020, they're starting to expand. Uh, the roles of uh, dental hygienists to do these things that, uh, you know, filling and such that the dent drilling and filling that the dentists previously did. It sounds like there's still quite a sort of demand and need oh, yes. for uh, dentistry work. Yeah. Yep. No, no, there's, there's kids, they, they fall through the cracks. I'm looking here. Mm -hmm. They go to a lot of schools in Lynn, on the Cape, Boston, mm -hmm. and, uh, and thereabouts. I made a a chart over 60 different communities this band goes to and 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 takes and uh, tries to help with the kids yeah I, I from my right sort of my perspective and my uh fairly privileged upbringing right i feel like there is this uh i don't know uh like assumption by um a lot of uh people that uh den dentist that like the issue of like oral health is sort of like solved um, because, uh, you know, uh, the, the, myself, you know, myself and 
my acquaintances and friends who had a privileged upbringing, you know, had access to high level, you know, dentistry and, and treatment, um, you know, from a young age. Um, but like you said, you know, people are still falling through the cracks and, uh, right. This, uh, there's a lot of people who still need, um, stuff like, uh, Forsyth kids and similar programs. Exactly. Though there was programs thrown through the schools, not to um, downplay those, but for all those things, for all of fluoride, for all of those things, there are still pockets of mm -hmm. children. I mean, yeah. it's it's horrendous. And, you know, they still have, I didn't sh show you a picture of a kid with rampant caries, dental cavities today, but um, there are still little kids going to having, you know, 10, 20 teeth. They only have 20 with cavities mm -hmm. and being treated. Yeah. So it's um, sad but true. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so, you know, Forsyth, we, we moved um, from the Fenway to Cambridge, to Kendall. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, I, we... At the beginning, we you, we discussed that the original funding was basically foundations through the Forsyth brothers, and mm -hmm. then big funding was from the government NIH. Mm -hmm. Government funding goes on, but the government is asked to do a lot of things, <laughs> and so uh, it, it, it was never easy, but it gets harder. So the focus mm -hmm. is beginning to be somewhat more entrepreneurial looking into innovative treatments and looking into things like that. So there's a kind of a cycle of what is uh, funding research that needs to be done. I think right, right now right. The, 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 the core, there's always a core of government funding, but it's hard to get and very competitive. Um, so there's this other sort of uh, other wing going, going on. Mm -hmm. Percy Howe, he, I suppose he could have made a, a lot of money with his silver solution, but if you may have re remember from reading the book, he decided he wouldn't charge anyone and he wouldn't mm -hmm. pocket it. But Which anyway, is fantastic, yeah. Happy days. Those, the, the, they, <laughs> these days, you know, patent yeah. it and see what we can do and keep, keep, keep everybody going. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, hopefully some of that original, uh, you know, uh, altruistic spirit still survives with some people. Sure. Um, we are, uh, running near the end of our time and I think we've covered just about everything, um, that I had hoped to uh, cover. Uh, thank you so much. Um, this was a fascinating conversation to have. Um, and, I learned a lot, uh, and uh, I imagine our listeners um, have managed to learn even more than me. Um, and if you would like to learn more about the Forsyth Institute and its history, uh, you can go to forsyth.org slash about dash us slash history, and that's F-O-R-S-Y-T-H for Forsyth. Um, and I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Ann Tanner um, again uh, so much uh, for entertaining all my questions um, and lending your uh, experience and knowledge uh, to help inform those interested in this topic. Um, uh, and uh, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, say or speak on? Well, I'm glad to have this opportunity to discuss this with you. Obviously, we have just touched on the whole world of dental research and in particular related to foresight. So I, I, uh, I guess I feel, I feel that we left out a lot, but if it sparked anybody's interest about that building on the Fenway, um, this is a, a good place to start. Of course, yeah. And there is, um, I, I believe the book is called Dr. Howe in the Forsyth Infirmary. Well, that's, um, that, that goes up till 1950. And if you stay mm -hmm. tuned, as it were, maybe in a year or two, we'll have the updated version, which is what we're right. working what, on now. Which is what, yeah, of course. Yeah, which I'm excited for, <laughs> <laughs> even if even if it's just me. Um, well, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, uh, William. For, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for lending your time and your knowledge. 
Um, and we will sign off here. Uh, thank you, listener, for listening to NU Brainwaves. Um, and I hope you will join us again for a future episode. by William Perrine with special guest Dr. Ann Tanner. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of Susanna Mays, our podcast director, and Sean Kolzinski, WRBB's general manager. This episode of Brainwaves was mixed and edited by our audio engineer, Joseph Mossbridge. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is W by Mary Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.